Hi, and welcome to Buy Back The Block series, where we talk everything real estate and investment. We believe in empowering those in our communities to take pride in where they live and to share stories of journeys traveled and their successes. Every journey is unique, but also important as it provides an opportunity for those in the community to learn and progress through the experiences of others. There is infinite power that exists through collectively working together. Join me for part two of the interview with Kwesi Afam. But yeah, I mean, I'm in my by, by profession, I'm actually an ERP consultant. So um, I actually work with Oracle uh, technology um, and uh, cloud solutions. So um, the, the 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 movement that I saw over the past over the past five years from on-premise ERP solutions to let's not manage these systems on the ground anymore because they're so expensive. Let's put that in the cloud and then we would um, operate a subscription model. And then we're realizing, hey, okay, so we've got this person who all he's doing all day is scanning an invoice and putting it into the system. Um, why don't we just automate that so that it goes to this email account, it's automatically picked up by this system and uh, a number of activities that we have got down to a process mapped out that could all be done by uh, the automation of those uh, processes that are not even manned. So I know there's automation that is manned and unmanned. They're talking about a lot of the activities now are unmanned activities yep. so that they are literally just a system that runs by itself. Um, and you know that once that goes, absolutely, as you say, if we're disproportionately affected um, um, as a people, then of course that's going to have a major impact. So being prepared for that, sort of change is uh it's definitely something uh we, we should be look we should be looking out for like when i look at that company without you know like company x that process if so a that company might not have a lot of vain people if they do have vain people in that company they'll probably be sure. working in those type of roles so then if that role gets automated it's more likely the vain person is going to lose their job Absolutely, and that's the that's the root cause of the problem that we're going to face. Yeah, absolutely. But I think I think blockchain is going to be interesting, even in, even in the case of property, um, by way of smart yeah. contracts and the likes. Um, yeah. I mean, you wonder about lawyers because the truth of the matter is, is if you can develop a contract or a smart contract of some sort, um, it becomes a lot harder to justify the costs that are associated with certain transactions. If you no longer need a human element, all the way through, you know. Um, yeah, and I think land registry is actually one of the use cases that um, use testing. Yeah, because yeah. so, that would that would be really interesting because that would be perfect if you can have every property on the blockchain. It would be so much easier. You know, you wouldn't have to have so like transferring ownership would be so much yeah. more straightforward Absolutely. than using all the paperwork that we use. And yeah, you know, the cost would be massively reduced. Yeah. I think that in the, in the real world, for me, that's probably like one of the best use cases. The property overall. So on the one hand, you have the finance. So you can use um, some kind of cryptocurrency to transfer the value, i.e. the money from one asset to another. Yeah. You can track the asset on the ledger, yeah. which is looking at the property moving from owner to owner. Yeah. And then you can have smart contracts, which... Um, execute so yeah. if if you have a tenant every month it automatically withdraws the money and pays it in on the date the tenant moves out it automatically pays back their deposit and this is all built into the 
programs, smart contract at the start of the tenancy, et cetera. So I think property is a great use case for end-to-end blockchain where you can actually have everything on the blockchain. But yeah. at the same time, the, one of the things that's interesting about blockchain is that um, uh, we talked about use cases. Most of the best use cases are in banking and finance. Why? Because that's where the money is. But you know what? But, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to flip it on his head slightly. The, the thing with uh, blockchain and especially with cryptocurrency it was always born out of um, the desire to deviate from how a lot of people perceived um, the financial markets have been um, rejiggled or um, influenced by big money, and it was bought. It was it was bought as not as an alternative to the official financial system, and that's the reason why people are, to a degree, upset with such um, currencies such as XRP and the likes that have the backing of major um, financial institutions. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, it's interesting that now, um, rather than um, uh, there being that strict distinction, it seems like the financial service industry is very much uh, spearheading and adopting um, um, uh, a crypto and um, blockchain in such a big way. Yeah, I agree. I think everybody who's interested in blockchain should read Satoshi Nakamoto's and Nakamura's um, white paper on blockchain. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a great um, place to start in terms of trying to understand what it's all about. Yeah, but um, the, the the point you make, I think, if if we want to, if you look at things like the, the developing countries mm-hmm. and how their currency fluctuates and varies relative mm-hmm. to the dollar or the pound or whatever mm-hmm. and how or even if you look at the western world and how they deflate the currency by printing more money mm-hmm. and if you actually want to control that or you want something that's outside of that system that's kind of the purpose of a blockchain based um a cryptocurrency mm-hmm. that's kind of the purpose mm-hmm. i think the downside to that that argument is, you know there's two sides to everything and then the downside is then you have a currency which has no backer or isn't backed by anything and then what is it really worth? Yeah. So like there's two two things that um, uh, currency needs to have. You need to be able to store value and you need mm-hmm. to be a medium of exchange. Mm-hmm. So the question is, if you based on, even if you look at what um, Satoshi wrote, the way that it stores value is because there's only X amount, there's a finite amount of the currency. Mm-hmm. These days it's traded. So it's more of a traded product than mm-hmm. it is a mined product like it was. Mm-hmm. in the beginning so you have you know the exchange where lots of people are buying and selling it and the price or the movement is more determined by who's buying and selling it as opposed to how much quantity there is but would you, so i don't know if that's the whole truth yeah but would you would you say that the reason why the success of certain cryptocurrencies and and, and probably the gold standard um uh, being bitcoin is is that is that is that based on the fact that it's it's speculative or is it really is it really a financial uh, uh, basis for it? Because transacting in the currency is not exactly the easiest of trans- um, currencies to transact in. Um, as you, I think that's the problem. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. I think that's the problem. I think back. Funny enough, I bought my first Bitcoin back in 2013 when my son was born. Mm. But the back then, the I'm, I'm, I, the hope was that it would be more of a to the second point. Um, so holder of value, and then the other point is a medium of exchange. Mm-hmm. The, the hope then was that it'd be more of a medium of exchange and you'd be able to buy more things with it. And I think that hasn't happened either. Mm-hmm. 
So it doesn't necessarily store value. No, and it it's not necessarily a medium of exchange. Yeah. So I think the hopes that people had for it haven't necessarily materialized. Yeah. But what has materialized are lots of other use cases yeah. for how we can use it. To answer your question, I think that it's more speculative. I don't. It doesn't have any value, so it doesn't have any underlying. When it mining used to be, I used like three years ago. If you'd asked me, I would have said, you know, the processes behind Bitcoin. Um, the analogy I would have given you is that during the gold rush, the people who made money were not the people mining for gold. It was the people selling shovels. Yeah. So for me, Bitcoin or even cryptocurrency in particular. I always thought that you could get into it as a business in terms of facilitating people accessing crypto or mining for crypto or selling mining equipment. For me, I think that's more and more people, more and more people get into mining, more and more people need mining equipment. And if that's what you're selling, you're effectively selling the shovels to the people seeking for the gold. That's how I would have pitched it. Uh, times have moved on. Yeah. I mean, I don't even know if that's still a valid approach. Even now. even in even in the case of even in the case of um, mining, the 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 amount of energy that you use to mine it, exactly. it and, and how how powerful you need your computer to be, it just doesn't make sense anymore. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Because again, the, one of the ways the algorithm is written is it becomes harder and harder to exactly. mine. So you need more energy to mine as more exactly. crypto is created. Exactly. So yeah, I think it's more speculative. I think. Um, for me, I, I'm a big fan of the technology. Yeah. I'm less of a fan of the cryptocurrency in itself. Yeah. I think we do need, like, for, for example, if we look at the housing example, that only works if there's a universal crypto that you can use to buy your house in. Yeah. So you can't use fiat currency. Yeah. And then, you know, you need to have a currency that is stable so that if you... Uh, need to pay your rent every month it's not the value of your rent in in town isn't changing relative to the crypto so for example with bitcoin you know this month bitcoin goes up your rent price effectively goes up because you have to change your pounds that you earn into bitcoin which are more expensive and then that's not going to work because every month your rent you don't know how much, how much rent you exactly you have exactly have to pay in a different currency so exactly. i think it does need to be some a relative currency in order to be able to use the full benefits of blockchain and smart contracts in particular. Yeah. But, you know, there are elements of it we can adopt, I guess, in, yeah. in, in part. Someone said to me, and I, one of the points I always ask about people, I, I see people and they might pitch their business to me and it's blockchain-based. I ask the question, why does it have to be in the blockchain? Because I think there are also lots of people who just misapply the technology just because it's yeah. new. it's new. You're right. You're absolutely right. But I mean, but what is interesting is, I mean, the adoption of um, the adoption of um, crypto. Um, look at countries like China now, who have actually created um, a government-backed cryptocurrency that's used in certain um, states in in China. Yeah. You know, so. And I think that's where we'll get to. Today. Yeah, I, I think, think we'll have to get to a central bank. Yeah, because I mean, let's, let's face it; it's, it's got it's got to be backed by some sort of. Um, um, asset um, um, and nation at that for it to for it to work effectively. I mean, again, that's one of the reasons why XRP, uh, although it's a good thing, the people the thing that people don't like is the fact that you can increase the supply of the the um, the, the coin any any at any time time that you want, um, yep. and who controls that? And and, 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 and those are the questions that people 
people have, you know, um, inflationary pressures and, you know, deflation. You know, if you need to control it at any point in time, that could be done through that. But no, I think I think another another five to ten years, you'll start seeing some some excellent uh, some excellent products coming out. Um, I know Oracle itself, as I said, I've, I've, I mean, I work with Oracle Technology. I know they've, they've got a product out um, that's based on blockchain technology. Um, it's not very popular yet, but um, when when the big boys start looking at it, then you know that there's a there's a chance it might it might take off. Yeah. Exactly. But I think the key thing is that they have a product. They have a, like a product on the market based on blockchain. Absolutely. So anyway, look, we're talk, we've talked we've talked we talked about quite a few things here. Um and I thought it was gonna be an easy conversation. Um mm-hmm. my next my next question is um so you're doing all these you're doing all these things. Um you're uh, you've opened up these two slow money and future finance. How did you actually decide that you wanted to do or work in property? How was that? How was that transition? Or what? What? What is the thinking behind you also doing stuff in property? Yeah, that's a good question. So, property actually came before all of that. So, okay. when are we talking about twenty thirteen? Yeah, I think back in twenty thirteen, when around the time when my son was well, I was about to have my son, is when I was having. I call a midlife crisis was kind of thinking about what am I going to do and how am I going to secure my future in a, from a well-being, I guess, from a well-being perspective, how am I going to be able to do the things that I want to do, enjoy the things that I'm doing, like my passions, raising my children and not have to be almost a slave to the system. And so around that point, I think I started seeing a life coach. It would have been, wouldn't it? Yeah. Oh, you've got a life coach? Not exactly. Not exactly. I had for a period. Okay. Around that time. But it wasn't something that I carried on. I thought of maybe you were feeling a little bit foggy and just needed a bit of clarity. And so, yeah, I kind of started seeing somebody to help me get a bit of that. So would you say that actually, because, sorry, I know know about... I know about another successful person who, who has a life coach or he's used one, and he's still now. He actually, he's actually a business coach. That's what he uses. And yeah. to to be honest, it surprised me when I found that he uses a business coach. I'm like, what the hell does someone like you need a need, need a business coach for? You, ah. you're doing extremely well. Um, but let me tell you this. I tell you this. Yeah. The reason I tell you the reason why I got the coach in the first place, and maybe it's the thing that maybe answers the same question. So at the time, one of the things that I was thinking was um, if, if I look at lots of people who are successful and maybe have done amazing things, they all have coaches. Yep. And I can look at it and I looked at it across lots of different things. So, for example, I can look at someone like Oprah. She has a coach. Yeah. Someone like, even someone like Jay-Z has a coach. I didn't know that. But also... People like footballers, who all the best footballers. I mean, they might. And this, this is the thing that made it for me anyway, because I'm, I'm a big football fan. It made really it hit home when I was thinking, all of the best footballers. It doesn't like you might be the best footballer in history, like Messi. You have a coach. But then I thought as well, who doesn't have coaches in football? Who doesn't have coaches? <laughs> exactly. 
So then I said, actually, what do what what do, what what do I consider? My, which game do I consider myself playing? Am I a non-league footballer who doesn't get any coaching, or am I Lionel Messi? That's so true. when I when I framed it like that to myself, that's when I was like, I need a coach. Like yesterday, Where, where's my coach? That's true. So yeah, I, but I, for me, it was an exercise that I wanted because there was a point that I was stuck. I guess maybe less happy point. And I needed someone to kind of help me pass that. So would you say that? So, so you so would you say you actually got value out of that? Yeah, definitely. One of the things that I got out of that was clarity, and that's what wow. I was seeking. So I think that sort of before that, I was really kind of focusing. So I was kind of trying to figure out. So I guess maybe I can take a step back. So after uni, before I, when I was working at um, during uni, I was really bad with money. Spent all my money on my student loan on things like Avrex jackets and trips. <laughs> To Europe um, when I should have probably been studying during reading week. I was having great times, but um, I was also piling up lots of debt. Then I finished working. Um, I finished. Sorry, I finished uni. Was working. And I was earning okay, spending amazingly. Um, then I started working at Goldman. Probably for the first time in my life, I was earning really well. Mm-hmm. But what I discovered was that I was even more amazing at spending. It was like a game that only I could win. How fast can you spend? So, yeah, it was, it was it was fun times, but it wasn't financially fun times. And I developed. I think one of the things that I've learned about since then, obviously, is that, and one of the reasons why I did slow money, in fact, is that when we're young, at least for me anyway, my parents never really taught me about money, financial well-being, investing, and so these were skills, talents, whatever that I hadn't necessarily amassed at that point. Mm-hmm. So I had to go through this journey of at that point then starting to educate myself before I could pay off all my debts and then develop enough to save and then develop enough to invest in like stocks and shares mm-hmm. and then develop enough so that it could be a deposit on the home that I live in mm-hmm. and then obviously develop enough to then start investing in property for mm-hmm. investment purposes but I guess that was the abbreviated version of that journey I guess in that mm-hmm in parallel to everything else that I was doing, there was always this kind of burning thing, which is actually, I might be helping kids doing, you know, um, Wembley, we're doing music or whatever. I might be working, working some really great and interesting stuff. I might be doing music and performing in nightclubs, but either way, I actually don't have money because I'm also spending lots of money and doing all this stuff and I need to sort mm. my finances out. So mm. separately, I kind of had to address that through reading, educating. and Yeah, but I think it's, as well, for example, when I was at Goldman's, I, that's when I started learning from people there about investing because nobody mm-hmm. I'd met in my life before that had ever mentioned investing in funds. Mm-hmm. And I remember a guy that I worked with, actually a guy called Laddie, he talked about fidelity funds and I was just nodding. It was a bit like the first time someone mentioned Goldman Sachs to me and I was just nodding. <laughs> but then I went away and I learned about these fidelity funds and I ended up investing in lots of them which then actually ended up helping me buy my first house. So, mm-hmm. so that was kind of the journey into property. So for me, I think it's effectively what within slow money we call um, the 10 money commandments. And ultimately it's the philosophies that I developed during this period, which was focusing on a, things, some of them, things like paying off debt. Um, because the, the thing that I discovered obviously is if you pay off your debt, it's almost a double whammy because then instead of having to pay 300 pounds every month, you then 
have 300 pounds every month. So it's actually net 600 mm-hmm. almost. So you go from being minus 300 to plus 300. Mm-hmm. And that is actually quite powerful. So I always tell people, pay off your debt. And then, so then from going from minus 300 to plus 300 means you have 300 to invest. And then if you then take go from minus 300 to 300 invested, you've actually made a huge journey. And then that 300 invested correctly will become compounded. So you've gone from minus 300 to 300 compounded, which is effectively for me, the formula to build wealth. Mm-hmm. And that's what, well, that, that's what I did at least. Turned all the debt into investment or the cash flow going into debt into cash flow into investment mm-hmm. and then compounded those investments, which then, Build up over time and create enough money to use as deposits, then create enough equity to do other things with, I guess. Yeah, fair and yeah, that sounds that sounds like a plan. But then you talk about you talk about debt into investments. So you mean like um, the debt that might even be associated in property? Is 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 that the sort of debt that you're talking about? No, I'm talking more like short term debt. Oh right, so, okay, yeah. One of the things that's interesting to me, probably another conversation, is um, inequality. So if you look at financial inequality more broadly, one of the correlations um, is between how people, um, the rise in debt for people in the bottom 90% of the population, which is basically most people. Yeah. So the, the level of rise in debt also mirrors the amount of the top 1% have reduced their debt by. Mm. So it's almost, you could say, that the rich have funded the poor in that the rich have reduced the proportion of debt they've taken since 2008 by almost the same amount that the poor or the middle class have increased their debt by. Mm-hmm. So there's, to me, there's a, great, there's, that, there's a great correlation between reducing debt and building wealth. Mm-hmm. So that's what that graph shows me. As a debt, the, people who have, the people whose debt have gone up have become poorer and the people who have gone down have become richer and they also happen to be the richest and the poorest people. Mm. So, yeah, for me, so it's not just, there's, there's two types of debt and I always say get into debt, actually. That's one of the, my philosophies is get into debt. Good right, debt, so not bad debt. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, in order to build wealth, you need to use leverage. Yeah. But leverage is a different type of debt that actually you use to purchase assets that either generate wealth or appreciate in capital as opposed mm-hmm. to depreciate. So one of the, one of the other things that, you know, you should never use debt to buy depreciating assets, cars or whatever, yeah. Yeah. that's actually going to go down in value. You use debt to buy things that are going to go up in value because then you deflate away that debt. Yeah, so that's another financial thing. But if the asset price is going up and the debt is staying the same, then the proportion of that asset that is made up of debt is reducing, you're deflating away the debt. Eventually, yeah. let's say, let's say, I mean, if you take a house, you buy a house for half a million pounds and you have 250 grand debt and then the value doubles over 10 years, the house is a million and the debt is still 250 grand. You deflated the debt down. And so there's different types of debt. Whereas if you use, I know, some, if you finance a car on interest, you take the car <laughs> off the forecourt, you've already lost 20 grand. Exactly. The, the car lost value. Yeah. So, yeah. So let me ask this. I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you a, a question, not about financial theory, but where we are right now. So, mm-hmm. um, I mean, this is a, 
I don't know. Are we are we in the middle of COVID? Are we at the end of it? We don't. We're not even sure, to be honest. But one thing we are sure about is our government's borrowed a lot of money. Yeah. So well, they're, they're talking about what was it three hundred and thirty billion? They look. They've they've used to um to finance businesses and individuals. That's a lot well, so, of. Okay, let's be clear about this, right? So three hundred and thirty billion is how much they have actually funded, but it doesn't include things like the amount that they funded businesses. Actually. Wow. Yeah, wow, so wow, that's wow. The, the amount that they funded businesses isn't actually government money, it's banks' money that banks are lending and the government are underwriting. Wow. So if it was to default, then the government would have to pay it back. But for the moment, it's actually banks that are funding it, so it's not showing up in the government figures. Yeah. The numbers aren't, I mean, the numbers, the numbers will be really interesting one day. One day. In the future. One day. When we know the truth. But Yeah. But I mean, yeah. but, but, so, but I mean, back, back to my question. The government's borrowed a lot, regardless. That's a lot of money. And my thing has been, that is a, that, I mean, if, 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 if that was an individual, that individual would be in a debt clinic somewhere. Um, possibly <laughs> in, a, in a position of mental, uh, he would have mental health issues holding that sort of amount of debt. Now we've gone into that situation. We've, I mean, these are these are these are um, these are different times, but then I think to myself, would it ever be possible to repay that debt, or would it be a case where, as a solution, the only way in which that sort of amount of debt can be um, minimised would be by inflating it away? Yeah, I think we've got to a point in history where we will look back and realise that in high, it's a bit like. During the financial crisis, you remember um, rates were lowered to um, really low. Yeah. What, what was it 0.5 cent? Um, yeah, yeah 0.5, 0.75, yeah. And we, we thought then that it was a temporary and, you know, something, it was emergency. Emergency rates is mm -hmm. what everybody thought. Mm -hmm. And it lasted for 10 years. <laughs> and then after that, it went down again. So... I feel like we're at kind of at that position now where we are, we're not going to realize until 10 years time that we have ultra low interest rates <laughs> for 10 years. But here we are that we're going to realize in 10 years time that the debt we've amassed, we've moved to a point where debt is almost irrelevant. It's just a number. It's just something that the government throws out there because if you look at how, if you look at how actually the market reacts, which has been for me personally, the most interesting thing, yeah. actually, when the government, you know, they've been throwing out all of this money and all of this support. And first they came out with numbers and the markets went down. Mm -hmm. So they came out with more numbers and the markets went down. So they came out, so actually the markets want them to put in more, mm -hmm. not less. And mm -hmm. so it wasn't until they basically said it was a blank check that the market started rising. Right. And since yeah. then they've been going up. And in, in, in the UK, we're about more than 50% of what we lost That's, back in yeah, March. Exactly. You know? So actually, I think we've got to a point where the debt is meaningless and it's, the, the, the market reaction tells me that actually it's not about less debt, it's about more debt. The market wants to see more debt because they want to see the government <laughs> commit to an un, unlimited amount of debt and that's where we've got to. So we won't know that. So in 10 years, when, they, when we're having the conversation, it will be, you know, we won't be talking about national debt because it won't be part of the equation in terms of how we do our analysis because yeah. it's just a number. Wow. Yeah. yeah, that's my theory anyway. No, I, you know, whether it gets deflated away is another thing because, you know, we don't have any inflation 
the only way they'll defray away is by printing more money. If they yeah. do print more money, it's going to hit the other things like the currency and all of the other stuff. Mm. So they could, they could deflate it away. My, my, my thing is that they're not even going to be able to do that. It's just going to be like, yeah, okay. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, then there's going to be another crisis in 10 years. We're going to be like, but we've got whatever, you know, whatever debt we end up with in two years' time. They're going to be like, oh, but we've got whatever. Okay, it doesn't matter. Let's double it. <laughs> and so then in 10 years' time, we're going to double whatever debt we have then. Um, and yeah. Interesting That's times. I think, I think, that, yeah, sorry. Definitely interesting times. Mm, yeah, I think. It's going to be the, the, the most interesting thing, I think, to answer your other question in terms of where we are now. In the, the COVID crisis, we are probably, as a, if you look at the rest of the world, maybe the UK and America, a lot of countries are definitely on yeah. a downward you know, trajectory, economies opening up, things starting to return back to normal, opening up again. Um, I think the main challenge we have is the second wave, which if, there, if there's a, if it's seasonal and in the winter it comes back, in the autumn and winter it comes back, that's going to be a challenge again. Um, I think the the interesting thing from an economic perspective is that unemployment. I think that's the big thing to look out for. Yeah, absolutely. If we have rocket unemployment. It's gonna not just hit people um, from a personal perspective and from a kind of yeah personal perspective, but also just more broadly from an economic perspective. It's gonna be huge, huge um, impact because obviously this year we're in recession. If we have another recession in the, uh, the fourth quarter, first quarter next year, that's gonna be basically what like two years worth of growth. Yeah. and that means jobs that means spending that means tax receipts to your point about um, the debt the, 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 there's two ways the government can pay back the debt they can raise taxes they're not doing that <laughs> they're not doing that there's no way they're going to do that, that the, the impact... they can cut spending and this is the thing they can't cut spending either yeah that is a double whammy that is a real double whammy <laughs> <laughs> they can't cut spending because if you look at things like even the NHS coming out of this crisis can you envisage that anybody can even think about spending anything less than a lot, lot more on the NHS and that's just one thing <laughs> that is one thing no one's touching the NHS that... so, so already we know the NHS is probably they're going to have to like double the NHS yeah. budget yeah yeah and then we talked about unemployment Unemployment, so, and the thing is, even when you look at the furlough figures, I think it's, it's running at about eight to nine, eight to nine million, and that's a good indicator of how many, if if that support was removed, how many people might go unemployed. Even if we say yeah. half of that, that's a ridiculous number. No, and I, I will be. I mean, the number of people who have already been who were furloughed have been made redundant, uh, so that's yeah. why the unemployment number is going up. Yeah. Furlough has been extended to October. I think in November we're going to reach peak unemployment. <laughs> So, and it's okay, so let me paint a bleak scenario for you. In November, we're going to be in a position where we're in the peak of the second wave because mm. winter will it's start, bad, yeah. you know, in the east, and then it will start coming towards the west along with the virus like it did to begin with. And so the virus will spread, and then it will probably be start to peak around November, December time. 
at the same time as a lot of the economic hardship from the, this part of it is starting to hit, we're going to start getting a lot of the numbers, companies, the ones that, you know, the loans are going to run out, yeah. the furlough is going to stop, and all of that is going to come to an end around October, November. So that's really the period, you know, Christmas time, wow. I think. And, <laughs> then, lot of the and, then, come. and then we have the joy of Brexit. So we haven't even got to Brexit. This is the irony, right? A year ago, I'd be having this conversation and it'd be all about Brexit. They kick it to the grass. Brexit is in the grass right now. Yeah. yeah it's not yeah, even. I mean, Brexit, the Brexit, no deal Brexit, if that happens around the same time, could be quite interesting. <laughs> I mean, yeah. look, you know, the, the, the irony, so this is, uh, uh, let me give you a theory. If things are really going badly around then, this government could possibly throw in a no-deal Brexit, thinking that actually things are already bad. You know, so you're, you're, you're quite thing. right, yeah. But they say when, um, sometimes it's, when, when there's mass chaos is the best time you can hide your, you can hide your worst deals, isn't it? And um, you know that they have already supported a no-deal Brexit. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Reset, uh, make, make make the UK global, doesn't it? Apparently. Yeah, they, yeah, it makes them what they, they achieve the agenda that they wanted to achieve from the beginning. Absolutely. And they can blame COVID. Yeah, all for that. Wow, okay, okay. Man, this conversation, this conversation's going <laughs> everywhere. Absolutely yeah. everywhere. One of those, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so where are we anyway? Where are we? Your property, your property journey. Property. I think this is, yeah, I think. So you've... Um, You've um, you've invested in property. I mean, what what sort of area of property do you do you, do you, do you really uh, deal in? Is it uh, buy to lets? Is it what is it developments? Is it yeah? So I do HMOs um, basically oh, okay. in Northwest London. Okay. Um, I buy, um, renovate, and rent out. I buy right. basically three bed semis and three bed terraces, and I turn them into five to eight bed HMOs. Oh, and, five to eight. Okay. Yeah, and rent them out. Yeah. How long have you been doing that yeah. for? Um, so since 2015. Okay, okay. Yeah, five okay. years. It's funny, when I when 2015, before I started, I wrote a business plan, and it was a five-year plan. And so at the beginning of this year, I was thinking, like, about rewriting this plan, and then we had COVID. <laughs> I was like, well, oh, great timing. So let me, let me ask you this question: How, How's how's your how's the portfolio, the, the, the HMO portfolio, fared against COVID? Has it been has it been resilient or has it has it suffered? Because I would have thought. It's a great that, question. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, up until now it's been very resilient, but I think the dominoes pieces are about to start falling. Mm. I've had one, two, three, four, four, five, maybe five tenants hand in their notice. Wow. Five, definitely five, maybe six. Mm-hmm. And then a notice out of, I don't know, maybe what, 28, 30, 10, so that's quite a big number. Mm-hmm. And so there's that. I had a valuation recently post-COVID, my first post-COVID property valuation, and they valued the property at 50K less than I paid for it. Oh. Yeah. And actually that, so I bought the property four years ago, and mm-hmm. so they valued it 50K less than four years ago. But actually, I had a valuation two years ago, and so technically, they valued it at seventy-five k less than it was two years ago. And so, I think the post-pandemic is uh, having, environment, yeah. yeah, and it's early days. Um, I mean, my take on it really is that the 
in, in my situation at least, the valuer was, you know, discounting in this post-pandemic world, while at the same time claiming that it wasn't, you know, Effective. being discounted. Yeah, his valuation, but clearly it was massively. Hmm. So they, yeah, that's that's really just yeah one of many challenges, and in, in the property space. But I think yeah, it's that's business for you. Yeah, true, true, true. But like all things, we'll uh, we'll get out of it somehow, yeah. some way. So what's that your so, 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 so what's so what's your strategy going forward then? So, um, I mean, considering the times that we're in, everything seems to be a bit shaky. Well, it's interesting. And when I speak to mortgage brokers, um, they all seem to think that prices aren't really changing um, in the resale market. Um, I question whether or not that's the case. Mm. Um, but what, 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 so what, so what's your, what's your strategy? I mean, I think for me, I look at it in, uh, when I was thinking about this, at least, so, okay, for me, my property strategy is twofold. I buy and hold. So there's always a portfolio to manage and there's mm-hmm. the management element of it. And then these, the, um, growth element and looking at opportunities to add to the portfolio. Mm-hmm. So on the management side, um, I think the key thing is to look at that more closely, um, look at how we can be more efficient with the business. Um, reduce costs where possible mm-hmm. um, yeah and just try to really solidify that piece on the acquisition front I think at the moment um, probably in the holding pattern wait and see well, I, um, I had wanted to add to the portfolio this year but again because at least the way that I operate I use my own money to buy my own houses that I keep myself mm-hmm. so I'm not flush the cash coming out my ears and I'm not necessarily looking for external investors to add to my portfolio. So what I might consider is looking at opportunities to invest in other um, stuff um, which I've done before. And I think that might be yeah, the strategy, at least for the near term. But let me ask this question. Why, why is it that you only want to use your own money? Why don't you want to use investors' money? Um, for me, it's really just the approach. So I'm trying to build a sustainable model mm-hmm. um, that is kind of has its own momentum within mm-hmm. itself. So a self-sustaining model, as I call it. And so I want to come up with a model that can basically drive itself. Right. And ultimately, if that model can drive itself, then it, I can remove myself from that and it will kind of keep itself going. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the goal. Um, that's one reason. The other reason is you know, I don't, I remember when I was getting, one of my uncles said to me, um, once, uh, he who pays the bills makes the decisions when I was getting my flat. And so, you know, for me, um, if I'm, for example, now that one of my projects, it's another project that I'm working on and we came on, we came into some difficulties on the planning side and it's been a long time and a lot of hassle, but because there's nobody, there's no outside influences. Mm-hmm. I don't have any external pressures. I can, you know, take as long or not as I want with the project. Mm-hmm. It's only my money at risk. And yeah. I think that's a level of comfort that you don't have if you bring other people's money into the deal because you get pressure from them. They want you to do stuff. They want you to take decisions. Mm-hmm. Maybe not necessarily the right decisions. Mm-hmm. 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 Would 
don't you think that your approach is also driven by any influence from your parents? I mean, for me, for me personally, I think it, it might have been in the past, but yeah. I spent a lot of time reprogramming my Yourself. limiting beliefs yeah. that I was raised with. And I think we will we'll have these limiting beliefs and I think that's the key. I, you know, I probably wouldn't even be taking these type of risks. Go to school, get a good job. Go to school, get good grades, get a good job. Yeah, that was kind of, you know, I was always capable, and like I say, but I think to a large extent, I was capable of being really good at a good job. It's kind of how my mom raised me. Yeah. Be a lawyer, be a doctor, be a professional. Yeah. Be good at your profession, get a good salary. And, you know, that was kind of the scope. So... I think to even get to what now is beyond the limitations, if you like, if you want to call it that. And so if I look at the, I mean, I work, I'm, I'm in finance. So if I look at the whole financial system, I look, I, there's, there's definitely something I considered. And, but um, one of the things when I look at the, the 10 money commandments is about understanding, you know, why it, it needs to be about more than money. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, it's the number one commandment is don't make it about money. And so for me, it's not necessarily about money. And therefore, if I look at it in that context, I don't need other people's money because mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily help me achieve my goal. Fair it might help me get the goal faster, but it doesn't necessarily help me achieve the goal. Fair so, enough. Fair enough. Okay. 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 Unless you have some money you want to give me, of course, then. Man, I'd have to sell my kidney. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, what's interesting is, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm at this point right now. Um, I've got a site in in Kent where I'm um, building a large, a large HMO, and I'm basically in that that position where I'm trying to figure out whether or not, well, how exactly I'm going to finance it. So, yeah. I mean, I've got my own savings. Um, um, I could, I could go for a bank for additional financing i could look for an investor um friends are also, are, is, are also another option um as i've seen to build up enough clout to to request money so it's it's just about how you want to structure it and how you see your life as as as, as working i mean you hit the nail on the head though but that final point i think yeah how you see your life as working yeah ex- ex- exactly um and i mean in recent times, I think I think my positions have changed and my priorities have changed around what I, where where I see my life and how I see my life as being lived, and and I think that's going to drive very much, even in the case of how I how I uh, raise finance and what is what is important to me, what what sort of uh, exposure I want to I want to I want to put out to my to to to, to myself and my family, and. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I th- and I think that's going to very much di- dictate a lot um, of, of how yeah, I how I, I how I, I play going good. forward. You need to start with you know we start with you as they say and what's important to you. Yeah, exactly. For me, I think if I look at those things and really bringing an outside investors money aside, I don't necessarily want outside influence. Mm, fair enough. So, fair enough. Hey, you know what? Quasi, I think we've spoken for a long time, you know. <laughs> this yeah. is a long, con- this is my longest conversation <laughs> ever. I'm going to have to chop this up into at least, into like <laughs> two or three pieces. 
you know. <laughs> but no, it's been good. Definitely been good. Speaking to my fellow countryman, my fellow uh, tribesman, my fellow village man, and my fellow birthday partner. Bloody that's hell! The that's, most ridiculous. That is that is that is actually absolutely ridiculous. That's the, that is uncanny. In uh, beyond uncanny, yeah, I'm, I'm shocked by that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, part of me still doesn't believe you. No, it's absolutely. Give you a birth certificate. Can you? Mate. Send me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's, it's a madness. It's a madness. But no, it's it's been great um, talking yeah, to definitely. you, um, finding out about your journey, and not just your journey, but. Um, your involvement in community and what drives you um, your desire to be happy which I think is very important I think the importance of um, um, supporting a community that exists around you and understanding that look we all have the ability to to contribute in some way regardless of where our backgrounds are from or where um, we start from um, yeah. enjoy the journey that you're going through. I know that you're going to do great things, uh, in future. Um, and, um, and, uh, you would have a, a great time doing it. So, um, shout out to slow money, um, and future bankers. Um, uh, you can catch him on his Instagram handle. I don't know what your Instagram handle is. So you have to give that out. Yeah. It's just my name at crazy. From, uh, you can add, add at me on Instagram. I mean, I want to say thanks. Yeah, but I want to say thanks. You know, what you're doing is amazing, and people we need people like you. Yeah. So thank you for everything that you're doing and what you're contributing to the community and the stories that you're sharing. Yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying, and I think I'm learning from them as well. So absolutely, keep it up, man. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I mean, I, I, I tell people this all the time. It seems like it's it's more fitting now than ever has been. Um, to, to, I mean, you, you just look around us. We, we, we're being hunted. We're being hunted to a degree. Some people will say we're being persecuted. It is m more now that we have to understand the power that exists within collectively working amongst ourselves and helping to progress ourselves economically, sociably, socially, politically. These are all important ingredients in, in seeing that the, the scene and the community moves forward. So um, I've got by the Block UK, that um, helps people that want to move forward, um, discuss property and investments, and, um, and, and, and inspire those around us from environments um, that are, are just like ours, you know? Um, yeah. So I tell people that if they want to join or connect with me, I'm on Instagram by the Block UK, and, um, and I'm sure we can get a discussion cracking. But really, really do appreciate your time today. And um, surely we'll catch up That's later. Pleasure. Definitely. Thank no, you very much, Kevin. No doubt. Bye. All right. Thanks.